Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. <laughs> it's back, Joe. It's back. I never left. <laughs> And our podcast is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. As well as on Tecumloops Taste Sewetmuk in the traditional and unceded lands of Sewetmuk Ulu, we recognize our responsibility as settlers to uplift Indigenous creatives and to help to build a young adult landscape that's inclusive of all marginalized folks. Indeed. Not today, though. Today, it's just white guys as far as the eye can see. Yes, indeed. (sighs) So, folks, we are talking about Stephen King's novella, The Body, as well as its film adaptation, Stand By Me. And because we are talking about the king of horror, quite literally, I thought we should bring on a guest who is knowledgeable in all things Stephen King. So, today we are joined by the editor-in-chief of Consequence of Sound, but more importantly, he is a co-host on The Losers Podcast, which is entirely devoted to the work of Stephen King. So, Mr. Rothman, thank you for joining us. No, thanks for having me. I'm uh, very excited for to take a long walk through the woods to find a dead body. <laughs> michael i'm glad you're here to talk to joe because i'm useless with all this kind of stuff but i actually really enjoyed it yeah i picked this specifically for you brenda because it's not really scary at all no that's what i like best about it so michael what you wouldn't know is that brenna and i have been on this journey to try to find good examples of male-oriented ya texts Mm -hmm. because we find that they're often kind of just nasty characters or like they're really poorly written so i actually think that this is a really good example of Mm -hmm. ya for boys yeah i would agree i I think one of the things that's so powerful about this novel is that um a novella is that where king's head was at when you know he was writing it i mean this if you look back at his entire bibliography different seasons which is you know what this is uh this comes from (laughs) <laughs> it's like his uh it's kind of like um magnum opus in the sense of him saying hey i'm not just about horror <laughs> right. i know how to write about all facets of life including childhood and you know this comes from a personal place uh for him especially just because i mean he is a writer he grew up wanting to be a writer and i think goyula chance is certainly one of the closest characters to him to the point where i mean we'll talk later on about the movie i imagine but this certainly is emotionally affecting to him, and I think it really comes across in every one of the pages in this book, or in this novella. Sorry. I'm not <laughs> laughing at the point you were making, but I do feel like it's very Stephen King to be like, I can write about all aspects of dead body finding related life. Like, any time <laughs> yeah. in your life that you find a dead body, I am there for you to write a narrative about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, when I look back at, you know, my nostalgia of the 80s, I, I certainly remember, you know, waking up and being like, look, are we playing uh, Duck Hunt? Are we going to go order Pizza mm-hmm. Hut? Or are we going to go down and try to find a dead body uh, by the railroad <laughs> tracks? Like, I mean, it's just one of those three. It was always going to be that, you know, every summer. <laughs> <laughs> every summer. Every yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so Brenna, for those who were unable or unwilling to read the novella, what is the body about? It's a good question. And actually, I'm happy to talk about the plot, but I have a question first. Can I ask a okay. question? You can try. Yeah. So 
I say this as the alleged English expert on the show, but <laughs> it's called a novella, right? Okay. And when I went on to Goodreads, I found that there were two versions. I found this after I had read the 192-page version, which to okay. me is a novella by absolutely no standard. But there's also apparently an 80-page version. Oh. Hmm. An 80-page version? I've never actually heard that one before. Well, it might be that they've since reissued them as like singular novels they do that with like pretty much all of oh, his like the green other, yeah yeah and like mm. they they kind of collected all those because there used to be like single novellas that were like serialized mm. i'm actually looking it's funny that you mentioned the green mile i'm literally looking at the paperback one right now because we're gonna be doing that next but with this they did i think you know stephen king blockbuster name ip every publisher that manages to get him does their own sort of reissue Right. of his works I, I mean i've even seen ones where it says like stand by me in parentheses the body <laughs> like, right which is ridiculous <laughs> so i think that must have been maybe that the case it expanded or it was condensed to the 80 pages i actually that's weird i've never seen such a disparate number wait before. those are two, those are two wildly yeah. different numbers yeah. it's basically them being like hey there's a dead body and then them finding a dead body and there's like no issue with the train or the <laughs> leeches or the pie eating contest it's all just been removed <laughs> i also feel like 192 pages it's just like a, like a short novel but anyway definitely whatever. yeah because originally it was 154 and because I'm holding like the, the first edition because I actually just could not find my paper deck. So I just grabbed that one real quick and it looks as if, so let's see. Yeah. So it starts at 299, Fall from Innocence, The Body, and then The Breathing Method starts at 43. So I imagine, give oh. or take, that's about 150 pages, give or hmm. take. So like that's, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like right on that weird line of like novella or novel because I, I mean, I've read novels that are like 115 pages. Yeah, totally. It seems to just depend on how it gets published the first time. Like, that's, yeah, that's it. That's it. Yep. Okay. So this book takes place in the town of Castle Rock, Maine, which, in my understanding, this is important to Stephen King, this space, right? Like, he's set other things here. Indeed. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Major many, headquarters. Many, many, many. <laughs> okay. So our main character is Gordy Lachance, and he has three best friends. Chris Chambers, who's like a misunderstood bad boy. Teddy Duchamp, who sort of... He's like a military brat. Yeah, I think that's a good one. Yeah, yes, he's a military brat, but he's his father has pretty severe PTSD and has caused him some some physical harm. So he has all these sort of assumptions about what he can do and what he can accomplish. But he's a pretty tragic figure because you realize mm -hmm. pretty quickly into the narrative that none of them are true. And then Vern Tessio, who's also there. Um, and the oh, three. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, but true though. But true. Uh, yeah. He's the slower member of the group, but <laughs> mm -hmm. he brings a lot of heart. Yeah. Mm, okay. Certainly, certainly more embellished in the movie. I was going to say, yeah. maybe in the movie. Maybe that's it. <laughs> so they set off after hearing uh, from some older boys, from I think Vern's older brother, yeah. that there's this body that's been found on the railway tracks. And it's the body of a boy who's their age named Ray Brower, who has disappeared. Everybody has assumed he was dead, but nobody knows where he is. And so they they set out on this epic adventure. They lie to their parents and say they're sleeping in Vern's backyard. And they go out on this journey to find the body because they think it's going to make them sort of heroes of the town to return mm -hmm. with this body. And there's a series of, you know, various conflicts. There's some leeches. There's a near train disaster. There's some sitting around a campfire telling stories. Ultimately, though, they do find the body. They find what they're looking for. But they're met there by some older boys who want to take credit. And there's a standoff in which 
our protagonists assert themselves and end up deciding not to bring back the boy at all, but to leave him there. And yeah, and then we find out what happens to all the characters and it's uh, uniformly sad. So yeah. Very sad. <laughs> and there, there are so many consequences to what happened to the four boys comparatively to the movie. I mean, oh I my gosh. It's wild, like how different it is. I mean, I know Joe's, this is where Joe says, oh, we'll talk about the movie when we talk about the movie. But like, <laughs> the movie has such an intentionally Rob Reiner hopeful ending mm-hmm. that yes. it's not in the book at yeah. all. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the difference between books and movies, right? Like books don't have to satisfy mass market audiences. Yep. I mean, to a certain extent they do. Uh, like movies are such a ginormous investment that you can't afford to leave people on a Debbie Downer note. So you're not going to say, oh, well, like even the one really bad version that is kept in the movie is like so dark and depressing. And then mm-hmm. to amplify that by three in the book is really hard. I agree. Because you do come to love these boys. But they even soften that one in the film, right? Because they age up his consequence in the film as well. So it's mm-hmm. almost like, yeah, it's really a dampening down of that for reasons that yeah you're right you do come to be very attached it also helps that in the film version they're cast by extremely like those are sort of boys of the era right a lot of those characters and so yeah how many of them can you reasonably kill off is the question (laughs) all of them i say all of them oh brenna (laughs) i don't like horror michael but i do like it when everybody dies hey look it's a great outcome for everyone you know it's Equal opportunity for die. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. So I think one of the things that struck me, I read this novella a long time ago, back when I was going through a Stephen King phase, probably Mm -hmm. as a teenager, to be honest. And it struck me as like a bit of a boring tale. I think just because at the time I was myself just a couple years older than these boys. And I was like, yeah, this is what everyday life is like. Who cares? Whatever. (laughs) And going back on a reread, this is the definition of an American mythos tale. Yeah. If you want nostalgia and like a yearning for times of the past and like a return almost to innocence, this novella is for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It pretty much reconfigures the Stephen King formula, which is by its nature, like, you know, he's inspired by traditional American folklore. Right. You know, like the small town urban legends and how those urban legends can manifest into our own fears and horrors and how he turns that into a more literal approach. But with this, it's it's kind of the same thing because, you know, you have all these characters who all know each other because they all come from a small town. Castle Rock is a very, very small town. And with this, it's like, oh, well, everyone knew about Ray Brower and then Ray Brower becomes an urban legend. So it's almost just the right. same, you know, formula that he uses for his like horror stories, except that the horror is just really just the reality of things the consequences of things the and it's, so in a sense it's almost like actually terror more terrifying than a lot of his stories because all this stuff could actually happen could be true right i think what i appreciated about it is exactly that and to sort of maybe counter or complicate what joe's saying like yes there is nostalgia here but none of these boys have good lives yeah <laughs> like right none of them and so yes it's nostalgia for you know a certain level of freedom but the boys have that level of freedom because nobody actually cares about them oh yeah yeah and this idealization of the american small town except that it's an incredibly dangerous place for being such a small town right like neighbors aren't looking after each other people aren't protecting each other mostly people turn a blind eye to the horrors of the neighborhood right and so i really appreciated that i appreciated that it wasn't sort of 
don't you wish life was like that? Because uh, absolutely, I do not. Yeah, mm. no. And, and I think a lot of the nostalgia comes from the sense of just youth and like the idea that mm -hmm. you could just kind of go off and venture off and be the, the consequences are certainly there, but they don't come from the sort of realities of the world that we kind of have to face as adults you know like we can't just go off and be like all right we're gonna go spend three days in the woods like instead of if we do that it's usually like all right well i gotta make sure that um you know all my my, my work here is taken care of at my office right. i'm gonna book a really cool cabin um we're gonna get all my <laughs> friends and you know and that's kind of just i think there's a lot of that that comes in there with nostalgia but you're right i mean that's kind of what i love about it it's real nostalgia you know i look back at so many things that were devastating to me as a kid growing up and I think back to them and I go, well, they were really shitty. I mean, like I would go home crying, like I'd go home in my room and, you know, pout that, you know, the kid around the corner was calling me names and stuff like that. And but at the same time, I still look back on it fondly. Like there's something about it that's like, well, there was a free spirit there that we just don't have as adults. And I think that's kind of the true nature of nostalgia that. And one of the reasons why I, I respect it here, because it doesn't wear the rose tinted lenses so much. Mm. Yeah. I too have nostalgia for the time I pulled a gun on the bullies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joe, I think we have to deal with the elephant in the room, which is that I'm not actually sure that this is YA. Yes, yeah. So, Michael, this is another kind of ongoing debate that we like <laughs> to have. And I would probably say that the book is not because mm -hmm. it is being framed through an adult perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the film, I would actually argue, is YA for the most part, except for the Richard Dreyfusy parts. Mm -hmm. And those are sort of sporadically intermixed. And as a result, you can forget that it's happening until he pops back up on the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think that um, the film is much more legibly YA than the book. The problem with the book is that, again, it is so steeped in nostalgia. It's hard to have something that is both nostalgia and YA, right? Because if you have the adult narrator looking mm -hmm. back and filling in the blanks and adding the what ifs and saying things like, I know it seemed, you know, foolish that we did X, Y, Z, but that's the way things were, then you kind <laughs> of, by definition, don't have a YA at that point because you have an adult narrator. Yeah. And also the original vehicle really goes against the tenets of YA just because, I mean, it was paired with, not paired, it was commingled with um, <laughs> the first book, Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, which is literally about adults in prison <laughs> and yeah. escaping there. Um, and then also App Pupil, which I guess technically could be could a be YA yeah. <laughs> because it's about, you know, a teen becoming friends with a former Nazi. But then the last one is literally about a bunch of old guys getting together and reading stories. So it's very adult in the way that King used to write a lot of adult fiction in pulpier magazines. Right. But at the same time, I think I always make the distinction between two different YAs. Like one is like obviously the YA that's funneled to like the children's section. But I also think that there is almost like this YA contemporary, I don't even know how to label it, but like almost like the PG-13 YA. Like this is for the adults, but also really works even better for the kids. For example, like Jurassic Park. I always think of that one. You know, all of our parents read that book and they loved it and they had it by the pool and, you know, they, you know, they kept it in their nightstand, yada, yada, yada. But it was the kids that really found that book and ran with it. And there are kids in that book and they are all doing kidsy things and they are all, you know, in that book, it's dinosaurs are the big, you know, main event. And that kind of capitalizes on the notion that we all grow up as kids loving dinosaurs. So it's like you could almost make an argument that's why. And I would and I have before just because 
it certainly worked that way. As a kid, it connected so much better to me than when I reread it as an adult. Mm. It just it kind of captured an imagination. So it's like, I'm sure Michael Crichton wasn't like, these 12-year-olds are just going to love this book, but they did. So I think it's almost like the same thing here with the body. It just happens to kind of tickles the fantasy a little bit. Mm. I'm fascinated by this idea of like secret YA stories <laughs> being mixed into adult stories. And like we wouldn't normally classify them as such. And I, I don't think they adhere to the traditional standards of like the if we had to define it, we would say, no, this text needs to be excluded as a result of. And yet there are still little tropes and emblematic elements yeah i mean because look at king's other book it Mm. a great portion of that book is just all about kids and they're doing kids things and and at the time i mean i guess you're reading it as a 30 or 40 year old in the 80s there is a nostalgia tied to the fact that you're going to look back on the 50s and 60s and so that nostalgia does kind of fuel into the reader the adult reader reading it but I've spoken to so many, you know, constant readers and fans of Stephen King, and they all say that it was their gateway book as like a 10 year old, (laughs) like or Uh, 11 year old, which is wild. You know, you saying that actually just makes me realize that this story, this novella is really a precursor. I mean, I assume that he wrote this before Mm -hmm. it, but this is the genesis of what it eventually becomes, right? This idea of lazy summers and childhood friendships that dissolve in the face of conflict that is greater than what children should have to address and like secret forms of abuse that mask the real life horrors, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Brett is like, I have nothing to say to any of this because I don't read Stephen King. <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I think that's one of his strong suits. And I think that's one of the reasons why, to your point about YA, I think that's one of the reasons why King has been so timeless. You know, like we, we read R.L. Stein growing up, but we grow out of R.L. Stein. I mean, for the most part, we, we, we reach a point where we're like, all right, sorry, Mr. Stein, it's time to move to Mr. King. And, the, you know, that, that's such a good connective bridge because he's treating you know kids like adults you know or he's he's treating kids with the respect that we would give adults and that's i think the distinction a little bit too you know like there's a danger there that speaks to the reality of things and you know he does that and you could even like kind of toss in ray bradbury too um who was certainly someone that influenced uh stephen king because you know we we learn and read something wicked this way comes and you know the halloween tree and whatnot in school but Adults read them just as much and they, they speak to another level for adults as well. And they were written for adults too. So um, it's it's interesting how you can have those lines blurred a little bit. Um, and I almost kind of prefer the lines being blurred a little bit because I, I just think that as a kid, I liked knowing that like there was an adult that like was writing this story and saying, you can read this too. Mm-hmm. I think to me, this is very much in the same vein as the Virgin Suicides. Like mm-hmm. we have teen main characters or preteen main characters sure and they're very important to the narrative and their experiences and coming of age are central to the narrative but we're not reading it from the perspective of a young person and that's Mm -hmm. what makes it not YA perfectly like engaging to a young audience for sure I know the virgin suicides is really important to a lot of teenagers but ultimately we are not focalized through that perspective and I think that's what makes it interesting right because all of these sort of seemingly insignificant moments are given significance by virtue of the fact that Gordy still remembers every Mm -hmm. 
frame of this story, right? And that's what makes it important and significant to him. But you almost, you know, Joe, as you were saying, you when you read it when you were young, you were kind of like, meh, whatever. <laughs> I think that's very much how we know that our focalizer, our perspective, our narrator is not one of the young men, right? And so that's the difference. Like it's, I think it's less about audience and more about the focus and Mm -hmm. who is telling the story because it's not young Gordy telling the story right no and I think in the film that's a lot more blurry like there are some times when you know the Richard Dreyfuss voiceover which I don't actually think is used to stunning effect often when that drops away it's just a film about the boys then it really does step into YA in in a bigger way yeah well let's maybe transition over to the film and then we can have a greater comparison okay In all our lives, there's a fall from innocence, a time after which we are never the same. It happened in the summer of 1959, a long time ago. Oh, man, where do you hear this? Where do you hear this? What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? When the night has come and the land is dark. We interrupt to bring you an update on the search for the missing 12-year-old Ray Brower. Kid's gone, they're never gonna find him. Not where they're looking. And the moon is the only light we'll see. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. We're going to be on every radio and TV show in the country. I still don't think we should go. If I can only have one food for the rest of my life, that's easy. Pass. Cherry flavor pass. No question about it. I like to go someplace where nobody knows me. We found him. We got dibs. Better start running, eyeball. They got dibs. There's four of us, eyeball. You just make your move. You're dead. For some, it's the last real taste of innocence. I'm never gonna get out of this town now, my Gory. You can do anything you want, man. And the first real taste of life. This is really a good time. The most a blast. But for everyone, it's the time that memories are made of. So Okay, so the film, as you mentioned, is directed by Rob Reiner. It has two screenwriters, Reynold Gideon and Bruce A. Evans. It was released in August of 1986. $8 million budget, grossed 52.3, so quite a good success. Wow! 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I don't know how many of those are from the time versus uh, retrospective reviews. I mean, this is a universally beloved film. Mm -hmm. Like, if you talk about iconic films about childhood stand by me comes up all the freaking time so brenda you mentioned it's got a kind of all-star boys cast and it's funny i would love to know whether they knew who these boys were or if they just had genius level casting like i know for sure that Corey feldman was on his ascent mm-hmm. this is basically right in the middle of his really really good run in terms of roles mm-hmm yeah, so Corey Feldman as Teddy, Will Wheaton as Gordy, uh, River Phoenix as Chris, just uh, absolutely stealing this movie yeah. out from under everyone. Jerry O'Connell as Vern, doing so much for Vern that maybe Stephen King doesn't do <laughs> in the book. Yep. 
And then we've also got Kiefer Sutherland as Ace, which is the older boy who picks a fight with them at the end of the book slash film. John Cusack briefly as Denny, Gordy's brother, who appears in flashbacks. And then, as we mentioned, Richard Dreyfus as adult Gordy, who provides our bracketing device. And uh, just to bring it back to what you were mentioning before we played the trailer, Brenna, I would agree. I, especially on this rewatch, like having just finished the novella and then watching the movie, I was like, I get it. I know why he's here, but like, get Richard Dreyfus out of here. <laughs> yes. he, doesn't, he just doesn't need to be in here, I don't think. Well, because in the book, the narrator, I mean, he's effectively in many ways a stand-in for King himself, right? And it's this mm-hmm. sort of like... It's not just about retelling the story. It's about living with a series of regrets that have followed on from this story. And it's about mm-hmm. sort of like wrestling with losing that freedom. But also, what are you doing with the freedom you have as an adult? And like, there's all of that, right? And then Richard Dreyfus is just like, I'm gonna go play with my kids. See y'all. Bye. It's <laughs> just not nearly as effective. And you know, the whole thing is supposed to be that like, Elder Gordy is sitting in his car weeping at the news of Chris's death. And instead, we get this sort of like, I'm sitting in my car kind of reminiscing, and then I'm playing with my kids. It's a very significant tone shift that I'm not sure is... I mean, I understand why they needed to do it in the movie. I get it. But I don't know. I didn't need it. It loses some of that impact, right? Mm-hmm. I think I'll play devil's advocate. Do it. Do it, Michael. I love Dreyfus in this. I think that his voice is really is, is, is kind of essential. I think what's interesting, though, is that... A lot of this movie, to me, especially the adaptation, seems to be about cycles. I mean, it's so it's obvious and pedantic a little bit in the sense that, like, all right, well, we just saw a whole story about four kids being, you know, hanging out, you know, having the summer of their lifetime, the coming of age, right. and at the end, you get to see the kids, and they're kind of like, you know, he's basically the purveyor of this, and be like, all right, well, I'll, I'll take you on your next adventure, yada yada yada. But there's also cycles in terms of how, like, just the concept of storytelling and like what life events and like how they kind of impact our own like personality, our own id, our own spirituality. And like, you know, when you look at Richard Dreyfuss, who's the narrator, who plays, you know, obviously the old old Gordy, then it goes to the young Gordy who's having his own sort of flashbacks there with, you know, his father, Marshall Bell, and um, everything going on with John Cusack, his his brother. And so you're having this like really kind of unique, multi-layered experience of like what nostalgia does to kind of shape us and how the things that we carry as human beings that I feel like does it almost a better job than the book. One of the things I have an issue with the novella is that the novella tries to kind of capture this idea, how King wants to talk about writing and how he does this is, you know, he puts the stud city stuff in there. And I found myself just like, Oh my God, just get me through the stud city stuff. I don't want to read this because I know what he's doing here. He's trying to show that, you know, story is constructed from memory and from experience. And it's like, you know, Mm. putting a finger on a, on a table and collecting dust. But like, I just feel like the movie does a really better job at that conceit by showing the sort of narrators, the kind of booking anyway with the narrators. I agree that the focus when it's strictly on the kids is when the movie is at its strongest. But for me, like even, and maybe it's just getting older or whatever, but like, I I think it's just, (laughs) I find myself just in tears every time I hear Richard Dreyfuss come come back at the end. And it's just that one glance at the end that sells it for me. And it's, he looks over at his kids He's trying to figure out this ending and he just realizes like, oh, that's it right there. It's literally right in front of my face this entire time. It's like this this youth that I've been chasing, I'm finding it and that's the, the jubilance right there. I feel I see it. And it gives him the ending. And it's like it's so hard to talk about and capture writing 
in movies. Like I usually hate it, but I think that that moment right there is a little earned. It's it's I feel like it's earned, but I do love Dreyfus, but I do I do think that he is like the least common denominator for why this movie was a success. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about those flashback John Cusack scenes. Yeah. Of course you do. I say this is a lifelong lover of John Cusack. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I really wish those scenes weren't in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. I love seeing young John Cusack. Nothing makes me happier. But I think there is so much more emotional complexity in Gordy's wrestling with the fact that he didn't really know this older brother who's now gone. And his parents are absolutely destroyed through a grief doesn't 100% make sense to him. And as a result, he's shut out of their lives. And that's the tragedy of Gordy's character. It's such a pedestrian, simplistic rewriting of that grief to have him be the beloved big brother who was always in his corner. I think that King's much braver in the way he tells Gordy's story of grief or of living through someone else's grief than the film is willing to be. And and for that reason, I was just like, I love seeing John Cusack, but like, eh, make him one of the hoods. I don't need these Denny flashbacks. They don't make any sense to me. <laughs> I definitely think they make sense in the film if you remove the context from the book. Like if you're looking at it as a straightforward film and not an adaptation. Oh yeah, sure. But I just think it's an easier cool. choice, yeah. a, a significantly easier emotional choice to make. And I don't, I didn't like it. Well, to be honest, I think the film does that because it's afraid of being confrontational yeah. about just how bad each of the boys' home lives actually are. Totally agree with that. I think a lot of the film is emphasizing the excitement of this adventure. Like, we almost don't need them to have sad backstories or tragic endings in their future because so much of the film is concerned about what happens on this one memorable day. And yes, mm -hmm. like, obviously, that's me simplifying this. But I do think that there's, I don't want to say it's a watering down, but the film is definitely afraid of talking about those really horrifying backstories that these boys have. And part of that is saying like, yeah, Denny was amazing and he was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could definitely see that. I think what the backstories do, just the hints of them, is just kind of embolden their friends group. You know, because at the end, that's yeah. the that that's certainly the the final line. It's you know the you know Jesus. Did anyone have friends? God, I just butchered the line. I but, never had any friends later on, like the ones I had when I was twelve. Jesus, Jesus does, does anyone? Yeah, yeah. So I think that line right there, all those little bits of context that you get from the respective families, and you know everyone really. I mean, because everyone kind of has their own sort of confessional moment, with the exception of maybe Vern. Mm -hmm. which you know Vern <laughs> there's is just... just not much more to Vern. <laughs> <laughs> no no but but I'll, but at the same time i kind of like that like you don't really get much of Vern either because there is always that one person in the group that kind of comes from like a quote-unquote normal family and there's a sort of yearning that comes from that too but also there's a sort of sadness too because we don't really know what's going on in that that, that backstory and, mo and odds are most of the time with with most people that come off with this front to facing like oh yeah you know things are great at my house or we don't even say anything's great because things aren't really great yeah something is happening they're just yeah. not talking about it i thought that they're the minor little bits and pieces that we get at the backstory were good enough in the in the sense that they used them in ways that didn't seem too preachy i think that the ones with gordy certainly get treacly and they mm -hmm. really lean hard bit, on like yeah. the hallmarking aspects especially even like the yeah. lenses that they're using for a lot of these flashbacks but like I really do love how Gordy's come into play. And honestly, like Chris's confession is, I mean, that's Oscar nominated material right there. It's, oh my it's gosh. unreal. 
It's unreal, that scene. Especially when you contrast it with Will Wheaton crying, which <laughs> is less persuasive. He yeah. is trying. He is trying <laughs> super hard. It's so funny because I've read many a Twitter thread of Will Wheaton talking about how like how much it hurt him emotionally when people used to like say that he ruined Star Trek or whatever. Oh. Like I've watched Star Trek. I have no contextual information to know whether he was good, bad, or indifferent, but he's not good at crying in this movie i found it distractingly bad in that final scene yeah it's certainly phoenix is the mvp totally yeah Oof. so i had completely forgotten that river phoenix was in this and then Mm. when i started it up it's one of those things where i think there's certain actors and actresses it often seems to be men younger men who when they pass too soon we often like to think about the career that could have been. And considering the context of this movie, which is both nostalgic, but also foreshadowing heavily on future tragedy, it's very surreal almost to watch River Phoenix delivering this iconic performance, knowing that we would only get a couple of these more before he would then have his own Chris-like fate. Yeah, exactly. That, that, and that's that's ultimately what I think even gives this this film even more power. I mean, I vividly remember watching this as a kid in like the early 90s. Phoenix was still alive. It was obsessed with sneakers and I loved his appearance in Last Crusade. So he was just, he was definitely going to be like the DiCaprio of his, of his generation. Right, yeah. And even then, you know, Chris's fate and everything just kind of hits you like a punt, you know, right in the gut. But you're right. I mean, like right now, like looking back, so on the Losers Club, I got to interview Will Wheaton and, um, and Jerry O'Connell and you could tell, like, just based on how they talk about this experience, because they were all very close together. Like, they spent a lot of time um, offset to kind of get the camaraderie to going and everything. That right. they look back on it the same way that Gordy does with Chris in this. Oh, it's really heartbreaking, and it's hard for me to to not think about that when I watch this movie now. And it's almost as if like watching him do that confession by the campfire is basically like one big what if. Like yeah. you just watch it and you're like, man, like this, this guy could have been huge. Like he would, he would be DiCaprio today if he was still around. And that's just makes this movie even more heartbreaking in ways that have nothing to do with Stephen King <laughs> or yeah. the source material. Yeah. It's got its own legacy almost as a result. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious because I apparently just forgot everything about this movie and this book, but I always thought of it as a book about four friends. And when I reread the novella and then watched the movie, I realized this is actually Chris and Gordy's story. Mm -hmm. And Teddy and Vern are there and they have standout moments. But really, this is a story about two people's friendships. And that really surprised me because not only do we not often get powerful, emotionally vulnerable stories about boys as friends but typically like it would be a group of boys as you know Brenna we've talked about in a number of dystopian versions of this I'm interested so Brenna you in particular just because you've always had an issue with boy stories like did this connect with you emotionally the book especially yes the book really did I felt like the boys all four of them to a certain extent are having (sighs) I don't know, we always hear from people that like, 80s childhoods were amazing because we had so much freedom. And then you read this book and you're like, (laughs) 
okay, well, this is the 60s and like nobody even knew you guys were alive. Like <laughs> you could just mm-hmm. you could just F off for two days and literally no one noticed. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so I really appreciated the complexity of the four boys. As I've already said, I think Gordy's story of grief is an incredibly brave one to tell. I think Chris's narrative is also a fascinating one. But I even think like what we what little we know about Teddy and Vern is also really helpful. And I think something we haven't talked about is that in the book, there's an aftermath to their decision to stand up to the boys, right? That we doesn't happen in the film. Right. So when they stand up to the older boys, they're rewarded with absolutely beatings. brutal beatings. <laughs> right? Like yep. broken bones, not just, oh, I got beat up a little bit. Like, yeah. this is serious violence enacted on children. Like yeah. multiple broken bones, like multiple serious. And there's something about the stark consequences, the very clear-eyed view of what this parentless society really ends up feeling like for these boys that I really liked. I really was emotionally moved by. I respect and enjoyed a lot of the performances in the film, and I enjoyed the film like as a whole. And in terms of a boy-centered YA property, I think the film does a really good job of making you care. But coming right on the heels of the book, I did not find it nearly as emotionally impactful as I found the book. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, the consequences of the world is ultimately what I think, I mean, we kind of talked about it earlier before, but like, is ultimately what gets me like so sucked into this. Because I think that so many times like you see the bully and you kind of have this feeling that like nothing's really going to happen with the bullies. Like they're going to be jerks and at the worst you're going to get some name calling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't expect actual violence. You yeah. expect these teenagers to recognize, oh, okay, well, these are children. We don't need to do anything more to them. Exactly. That sort of real life, I mean, in real life, like, that's not true. Like, I mean, they will follow you home. I mean, I've been held up with knives and choked and blah, 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 like, growing up in, in, in my, you know, in, in my day. So seeing it, like, in a story where they are actually acknowledging these realities instead mm-hmm. of just, you know, the bully getting, like, a bunch of manure on him and then, you know, you know shaking his fist, like, in Back to the Future or something like that right there's a real like terror that comes from this and that's that's kind of partly why i love the 2017 version of it which was certainly inspired by this movie yeah because i I mean i could care less about pennywise i think he's kind of i've actually never really liked him that much as a villain but like what's really (laughs) scary about this story of it is the town and how the town turns a blind eye and is ignorant to a lot of the real harsh realities that are happening at every moment, whether it's racism or, you know, the homophobia, that's the rampant homophobia that's that's happening all across that, that town. And and the way that the parents just have no sense of pride in being parents and they just kind of yeah. turn away from it. And you get that in this story. I mean, like, yeah, and that's certainly the seeds of where he he's going to go with it. And I think that's why this story is so timeless, because like these are things that are just i just don't see ever going away sadly yeah and they're addressed with a frankness that Mm -hmm. is refreshing there's something to be said about the more sanitized almost palatable versions of abuse and you know strife that we encounter in some of these contemporary YA texts that brenna and i read on the regular where there's an unwillingness to actually explore what the Mm -hmm. grief is or what the violence is or what the abuse is unless a book is demonstrably going for shock value in which case you're like please just don't because you're not doing it well (laughs) and maybe because of the time frame that this is coming out maybe we have our own nostalgia for the way that it's being presented but there is something 
honest about both of these texts and whether you prefer one or the other. I think they're they're both doing a reasonably good job of addressing this without talking down to their audience and mm-hmm. saying like, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, it actually won't be fine. Nothing is fine. <laughs> no. God. Literally nothing God is no. fine. No. It's very grim, which is funny because like when people think about especially Stand By Me, they find this a very optimistic, very hopeful movie. And maybe that's just because of the way the film ends. But Mm. there's a lot of darkness wrapped up in this tale. Yeah. I mean, even when you think about just Ace's motives, Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't really get to see a lot of it in the film meditation. And it also doesn't help that like Kiefer Sutherland is just so cool. (laughs) He's one year away from Lost Boys, and you can yeah. already see him perfecting the image. <laughs> oh, right? I, it's so funny. Whereas Alex Winter, and you just literally look like his pack of vampires. Yeah. But like in the book, I literally like was terrified. Like any time that his name came up, and especially at the end, because you know that King has this funny thing of doing like foreshadowing, where like if he's going to foreshadow something, like or tease it, like or if there's something that's implied it's 100% going to happen or is true. Like if someone says like, you know, oh, I thought I saw a ghost in the corner of my my room or something like that. And like, you just think it's somebody that's, you know, being funny and superstitious. Nope, that's true in in his books. Like it's going to happen. Like, Mm -hmm. so when they mentioned that, like when Ace is like, you know, you will pay for this and we see Gordy like actually pay for it. That to me was certainly the more jarring aspects of this story than anything else because it's so harrowing. And it's something that, we talked about it earlier, but like it's something that I don't think would ever fit in this movie. <laughs> like, could you imagine, yeah. like, you know, Chris vanishes away uh, when they they wave to each other, and then, well, a week later, Ace did ca- catch up with me, and <laughs> I was put in the hospital for three months. It just wouldn't work. But in the book, it really does kind of hammer down the point that, like, God, these kids really were, yeah, all they had in this world. Mm-hmm. So there's one thing that I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't end up talking about it. We have to talk about Gordy's story, because at the end of the day, this to me is the piece that it does feel like you could remove it Mm -hmm. because it is a lot of autobiographical material from King. Like, hey, I'm going to show you how I perfected my craft as a boy. And there's something satisfying to the story, but there's a very pointed critique where the other boys say, and so, you know, what else is there to it? And you're like, oh, okay, so... It's about the stories that are unfinished and so on. But also, there's a significant amount of time in both the book and the film yes. dedicated to a relatively inconsequential story. Oh my and God, I'm yes. curious, <laughs> is there something more to this or is it just blueberry pie throw up? For me, I did not like the stuff in the story. In the actual book of like Stud City, I did not like that. Yeah. I think it makes more sense in the in the actual like novella than it would in the kind of short story that he tells in the movie mm-hmm. what i've kind of taken peace on is that it's i don't know it's weird like I've, I've, it is such a weird obscure part of the movie and the way that it's shot is in the same way that gordy has his own flashbacks mm-hmm. it's problematic in that regard <laughs> yeah and so like it's like I always forget that this is a fictional story and it didn't happen and that this is something that he made up on his own and I guess what I take away from it is that Gordy almost kind of sees himself as Lardass because, sorry, I didn't know if I... Had... No, no, you can say that. You can say okay, Lardass. Cool, cool. Yeah, no, okay, that we cool, say cool. all the time. Mm. All right, cool, cool. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. You know, every, every episode, why not? 
so I, I think he kind of sees himself as that in the sense that he's able to kind of get revenge on the town that kind of turned his back on him and possibly even his older brother. Right. But at the same time, I also feel like maybe Reiner's way of showing the sort of like harsh, t- like kind of adding into like the tone of the town as we were discussing earlier mm. and how like the way Gordy sees the town is the way that he's portraying the town in this short story and how like everyone's so narcissistic. Everyone's so willing to turn this person into a joke. And I don't know. That's why I kind of got out of it, but it is always such a jarring left turn. And as a kid, it did actually kind of frighten me. Oh, interesting. It's so dark. Like it's so cynical and dark that I just was like, all right, I just want to go back to the campfire with the kids. Like I don't want to be here in this world. <laughs> yeah. That is the weird thing to me when this segment happens, it feels jarring and almost out of place. But what really stuck out is how much meaner this fictionalized version of Castle Rock is Mm. and how that wasn't represented in the scene where I expected and even wanted it, which is the scene where Gordy gets the meat and he has to deal with the memory of his brother. And I think that this is factoring into what you mentioned earlier, Brenna, which is the softening of Denny means Mm -hmm. that we don't have the animosity on Gordy's Mm -hmm. behalf. So he's not going to get into a fight. But like, I really miss the tension in that interaction. And then also the interaction with the guy who owns the dump. Yes. Mm, Yeah. It's funny because my husband loves this film. And so he watched the first half with me when I was starting it on Monday. And I was like, you know, in the book, he puts his thumb on the scale in this scene. And Tev like looks at me, he's like, why? And I was like, well, because the town's really like not just not a good place to grow up and like people don't care about each other. He's like, really? And I was like, yeah, no, the town's real, real bad. He's like, really? I was like, yeah, no, the town is extremely bad. (laughs) It's not idyllic and sort of perfect. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's funny. And that kind of builds into like the lore that King is going to do with Castle Rock and that it's just the seeds of the town are just evil. It is funny that like, I totally forgot about the thumb thing. Wow. Oh, it, it's such a small moment, but it's so important. And he doesn't do it deliberately. But then when he's called out on it, he lashes mm-hmm. out, right? And it just reveals there's this menacing underbelly to even the most inane encounters, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a question about a change between the book and the film. Two things that got swapped that I would love to know what you guys thought of. Okay. So the first is when Teddy plays chicken with the train... Right. In the book, Chris pulls him off. In the film, Gordy pulls him off. Mm-hmm. But then when the gun gets pulled on the bullies, in the book, Chris pulls the gun. Mm-hmm. But in the film, Gordy pulls the gun. So I thought when I was first watching the movie that the reason why Chris is the one who rescues Teddy is because you've got River Phoenix and you're building up his heroic characteristics in that role. But then... They don't take that option for the gun. So I just found that interesting. It's It was sort of a bizarre swap in both cases. And I was just wondering if you guys had thoughts about it. You want to go first? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tackle the beginning. Yeah, the change with the train. I thought it was a fascinating choice, if only because I think that this was really important in the novella to clarify the relationship between Teddy and Gordy. And not just that Teddy is a bit of a hothead and that he's prone to lashing out if he doesn't get his way, but also that there's kind of friction between him and Gordy. We see Teddy lash out at Vern throughout most of the story, but you always get the impression that it's because Vern just isn't as smart and he's the wimpiest one of the four, so he's easy target. Whereas here, 
as you were suggesting, Brenna, it clarifies that Chris is almost the leader of the group and the strongest of them, Mm -hmm. which is maybe then why they give Gordy the moment with the gun, because initially you think it's going to be Chris that stands up for it. And he does, you know, he leads that charge. Mm -hmm. But then it ultimately has to be Gordy because it's Gordy's story Mm -hmm. and he has to be the one to become the hero. Yeah, I like that. I like that read. And I agree with that. I think that's certainly the intention of the switch. And in hindsight, it makes more sense. Well, it makes more sense if you think Gordy's going to have some massive character growth, but in the book, he doesn't, Mm -hmm. right? Right, yeah. So yeah, you're right. It makes more sense for his arc if he's going to have one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it's more realistic if not. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, yeah. if we're going to go in that route. <laughs> well, and it's a, again, I keep coming back to this idea of just it's it's an interesting emotional beat to choose, especially when it's clearly a semi-autobiographical character to be mm-hmm. like, no, I really needed Chris to rescue me from every situation that ever happened. And also now he's dead. P.S. These other guys are dead, too. P.S. I got beaten up. Bunch of bones broken. <laughs> Peace out, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would be wild if King actually did write that. As, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I took the gun and, uh, and, I, and, <laughs> and I saved the day. Um, and then I wrote a story. But no, I think it would that would have been a little a bit much. So it had to have been the film that would make that pivot. I do want, what if it was Vern that took it though? Oh <laughs> man, I'm a Vern stan. I want to see that happen. I kind of feel like Vern would have shot himself in the foot. Vern absolutely yeah. would have shot himself in the foot. Yeah, and then they all just laugh and they're like, hey, you guys need a ride home? Yeah. <laughs> Vern, you need a ride to the hospital to deal with that missing toe? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll put Ray We'll put Ray in the backseat um, with you. But uh, yeah, I, I, it's a, I guess it's a surprising also that like, Teddy would well I guess Teddy is being held back also in the movie so mm, could have chosen on that one too if they wanted to pivot into him okay one more weird swap I want to talk about and then I'll stop the book takes place in 1960 and the film takes place explicitly in 1959 which I find really interesting as like why bother that's one year's difference but I wonder if it has to do with the inherent innocence and peace of the film by moving it into the 50s for which americans have a much stronger nostalgic memory than for the 60s the 60s of course being associated with the debauchery that comes with all that came in the 60s so i'm wondering if that's why reiner moves it one year and puts it in 59 yeah i think that's a big part of it what's weird is that the early 60s are really what people actually remember when they think of the 50s totally mm-hmm. yeah which is so funny like you know like people are like oh american graffiti great 50s movie and it's like well it actually nope. takes place no. in the early 60s but <laughs> yep. you know hey you're right um hamburgers and french fries but i think it really is like irrelevant when you think about it like if it was 60 or 59 but i think you're right in the sense that by being able to say the 50s mm-hmm. those that are in the 80s at that point are able to say okay great i can i can do that but <laughs> it's also like if you think about where nostalgia was at in the 80s, it was all 50s nostalgia too. So it, it works like in that sense to capitalize on that. I mean, it's like literally like this movie comes out a year after Back to the Future. It's around mm-hmm. the same time that Peggy Sue got married. Everyone's doing like Elvis Costello's doing the whole 50s uh, do-up thing. Like right. it's it's big. Like so it, it would make sense for them to be like, all right, look, we got to get that 50s IP. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Do you want to play some YA bingo? Yeah. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, so Michael, you are our guest. Do Mm -hmm. you have anything that exists on the board that you would like to claim or a new bingo square that you would like to add? So the bingo square, it's like a feature or quality that's signature to this story or movie, right? 
Yeah. yeah, and that you would imagine seeing in like other YA texts, something that that kind of knits the YA experience together. You know, I was thinking about a lot of them. I don't think Kiefer's bangs um, or uh, his uh, his bleach blonde hair is going to fit on that one. <laughs> don't think we're going to see that in other stories. So I, I mean, it seemed obvious, but like dead body, like that seems like the the most obvious one to take from this. But I felt that that might have been a little too obvious. Dead body in the woods. <laughs> it's extremely specific. I think yeah, the, it's in very the woods it might be a little too specific, but dead okay. body. I'll take a dead absolutely. body. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's the focal point, but like, I didn't know if you really wanted like specific themes. I mean, because in that respect, um, it, you know, neglect would be a big one that I was thinking of theme wise. Yeah. I think neglect works for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So my new square this week was going to be absentee parents, but I will compromise and call it neglect. Okay. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Nice. I like and that. Um, <laughs> what we already have on the board that I want to tick off for this is abuse, obviously, yeah. and yeah, yeah. road trip. I'm going to make an argument that this is a road trip. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think uh, if I can add another square, I think we should add, we already have like hollow friendships and romances, but I'd like something to articulate when a text does friendship well, since it happens mm. so infrequently. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, maybe close friendships or good friendship something like that sure okay i like that yeah all right and mine is actually an old square that was removed when we wiped the board clean so i'm going to re-add musicality because i think that this film makes exceptionally good use of music to help set its tone but also Mm -hmm. i was like where can i buy this soundtrack i need all these songs back in my life (laughs) they're great it's like my go-to vinyl for when i'm cleaning around the house Yes. Except that their songs are like two minutes long. So like I'm constantly just putting it back on. So my neighbors must really <laughs> love it. It's like, oh, he's cleaning again. He's listening to, you know, uh, Great Balls of Fire five times in a row. But <laughs> you know. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that about does it for The Body and Stand By Me. Michael, how can people get a hold of you or find out what you're up to? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Michael Rothman, uh, which sometimes I wake up at four in the morning with very depressing uh, factoids and uh, little things, but most of the time (laughs) sharing a bunch of horror content, be it from Consequence of Sound, other authors that I'm working with, uh, my own writings, or with the podcasts that I work with, which are the Losers Club, Halloweenies, Psychoanalysis, uh, Horror Version, all the, the ones that are on under the Consequence Podcast Network brand. So lots of stuff through there. Twitter, certainly. Nice. Way to go. Okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with the show, it's hashtag HKHSPod on the Twitters. Joe, if they want to reminisce about River Phoenix with you, where do they find you? I am at B still on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And you can send us longer stuff at hkhspod at gmail.com. Keep the Minnesota ideas coming in particular. Speaking of which, Joe, mm-hmm. what's our next Minnesota about? So, Brenna, we are going to leave the U.S. behind, and we're going to check out a new Canadian movie called Body and Bones, and this hails from the East Coast, which is something we've not had the opportunity to talk a great deal about. I know, I'm so excited! I'm super excited. As you know, all my favorite Canadian films are Atlantic Canadian films, so I am super stoked for this one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then if people want to get a jump start on the reading, the next full-length episode... 
we're going to make a hard break from boy YA to very girl YA, Brenna. And your time has come. We are going to be talking about The Princess Diaries. Oh, my God. <laughs> Michael, this is what I get to do on this podcast. It's like, <laughs> let's just take hard left turns. I love it. I mean, we were just talking about that because we started a feature on the Losers Club. Those called Dance Macabre. Where we were able to kind of talk about all the other horror authors that inspired King. Mm-hmm. And every one of the guests that were on there and uh, my co-hosts were just like, Oh my gosh, we didn't have to talk about Stephen King for the first time in like four years. This is amazing. Right. It's nice. It's amazing. It, it's called yeah. diversity, variety. It's yes. good stuff. Love it. Love we it. move it around a lot. But shockingly, this is actually our first Meg Cabot on the show, which is like, ah, she's huge. And we've never talked about her before, Joe. Yeah. It's all about trying to knock off the big leagues before the end of year two. <laughs> I thought we were on. Oh, yeah. Book three is different from year three. Is that true? I don't know. It's all arbitrary. (laughs) All right. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. (laughs) And until next time, everybody, I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye.